with you just a couple of thoughts to come out of the book of the Revelation this morning. We, we so often treat the book of the Revelation like it's doom and gloom. Um, and I had a couple of people come up to me uh, last Sunday and tell me um, about this series and how much they feel the Holy Spirit is, is really working in their hearts in this series. Um, I got to be honest with you. It's hard to preach the book of the Revelation because I don't know about you, but the way I was raised, it was kind of this doom and gloom book. And it's because of some of the passages that one particular passage we're going to read this morning from Revelation chapter 14. And I'm going to tell you something. I don't think it's intended to be doom and gloom. Now, I didn't plan this out, by the way, um, but in my notes, the header that I have for this Sunday, um, and I did this weeks ago, so I, I didn't really realize how this was going to fall, but of course, tomorrow is what day? Reformation Sunday, come on, no. Uh, no, it's, it's Halloween, right? Uh, All Hallows' Eve. Um, well, in my notes, going through the book of the Revelation, this one is titled, Don't Fear the Reaper. Um, I, whenever possible, I use rock songs as the titles of my, of my sermon notes. Um, so, so, um, so this one's called Don't Fear the Reaper because it, it deals with um, the harvesting of the world. So let's go ahead and look at the book of Revelation, chapter 14. Like I said, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's a rack, one in the rack in front of you. The page number's in the bulletin. Um, and we're just going to look at a, a passage. We're going to look at the first half of what we're going to be looking for this week and next week. Uh, chapter 14 and verse 14. And this is a, the end of a particular vision. The book of the Revelation is composed of series of series, um, series of visions that portray the whole history of the earth and, and the whole history of salvation. And this one began in chapter 12 uh, with a woman who was wrapped and clothed in the sun and, and, uh, and the moon was on her feet. And there was this whole image of, of a righteous people and then a dragon fighting after, chasing after that that woman's child and then there were false there were beasts rising up out of the sea and out of the earth who were trying to sell a false religion and then at the beginning of chapter 14 there's this vision of the lamb um, of, of Christ standing on Zion and if you were here last week and you heard that passage and then you heard the scripture reading this morning you see where that image came from it comes from the gospel from the book of Joel uh, chapter 3 um, where it says the Lord roars from Zion um, to a, we've got this lamb-lion thing going that depicts Jesus. Um, and then we have this moment in chapter 14 uh, and verse 14. Then I looked, um, so that means that John, he's seeing all this stuff happening at once and he sees this one thing. I looked and behold a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he sat on the cloud and swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vines of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle to 1600 stadia. 
um, that's about 180 miles in that that depicts in there. So when we read this, right, there's a lot of negative thoughts that could flow out of this. I want to encourage you and I want you to remember that the book of the Revelation was written for two purposes, the exaltation of Christ and the encouragement of the people of God. So this is not intended to be ha, 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 the, the unrighteous are going to get theirs. Rather, it is a call to action to the church. So I'd invite you to join with me in a word of prayer. We're just going to look at this passage very briefly this morning, and then we're going to uh, go out from this place and be the church. Let's go ahead and join in prayer. Father, once again, you call us to your word. To look at these written pages, these written words, and to see Christ. To see more than just judgment. To see hope. To see our place in the work of the gospel. Guide our hearts and our minds and our thoughts and our feet and our hands this morning we might bring glory to your name, that we might know your agenda for our lives and our families better, that we might live in the gospel. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So immediately, right, when you see this idea of this angel with the sickle, right, what do you think of? Grim Reaper, right? Uh, now, the Grim Reaper is an interesting uh, image. Of course, we're here on Halloween and um, you know, the Grim Reaper. You guys seen the cartoon of the Grim Reaper standing at the lady's door? And uh, he's, he's standing there. He says, Lucia, I've come for your soul. Are those full-size Snickers? You're good. <laughs> this, um, you know, but, but of course, the depiction of the Grim Reaper is always, this is the personification of death, right? Um, and, and the image, believe it or not, comes from this passage. Um, it comes from the book of the Revelation. It, it arose, the image of the Grim Reaper arose during the great Black Plague of the 14th century in Europe. Um, the, the Black Plague, and if you haven't learned about this in history class, the, great, the Black Plague was a, what we would call a supermassive global pandemic. Um, to give you a sense of what happened, um, estimates are vary because obviously they didn't count the population of the world. Um, but the, it's estimated the population of the world in 1350 or so, 1325 or so, was about 475 million people. At the end of the Black Plague, the population of the world was under 300 million. And that was including the population of places that weren't affected by the Black Plague. Places like the, the Turkish Empire, which wasn't affected by it. Um, uh, China and Southeast Asia, which wasn't affected by it. Australia, most of Africa wasn't affected by it. The, the place that bore the brunt of the Black Plague was Europe. Um, and the population of Europe, in some areas of Europe, the, um, the death toll, the, the, fa the, uh, the, um, the, the fatality rate was 100%. Um, uh, Venerable Bede, and this isn't from the Black Death, it's from a little bit before, but um, Venerable Bede, who lived in the 8th century, he lived through one of these plagues, and he lived in a monastery, and he was a little boy, he was like 7 or 8 years old, he was the last person left alive. Everyone else died. Um, and he was left alive until somebody came to the monastery and found him and, and took him somewhere else. Um, so, so these plagues, we can't understand the scale. Globally, the, the, the death toll was 30 to 60% of the population of the entire world. 
but Europe bore the brunt of that uh, in the Black Death. Uh, let me give you a perspective on just how, how much we're, we're talking about, about 100 and 175 million people, 170 million people out of a population of 475 million were killed, uh, died in the process of the Black Death. Let me give you just a, a, an understanding of what that means, the difference. The last um, global, super global pandemic that we had in the 20th century was the Spanish flu um, in 1918. About 75 to 100 million people globally died out of a population of 1.7 billion. Uh, about 3% of the world's population. That was the most massive um, death toll uh, of our history. Um, in order to really understand what the wipeout of the Black Death would have been, imagine that New York, a city of 8.5 million people, was reduced to 5 million people. That 3 million people died. Right? And if that city was in, in Europe, so that's talking globally, if New York had been Paris during the Black Death, the population of 8.5 million people would have gone to under 1 million people. Millions of people died in the Black Death. So when people were looking at it, they were trying to think of a way to explain what was happening, and they read this passage in the Revelation. Why are all these people dying? What is causing this? Now, we know today, we know the Black Death is caused by a parasite um, that is passed in the blood uh, from rodents to uh, uh, fleas, and those fleas pass it to human beings. Um, and ironically, pass it to human beings because they're the only hosts left because human beings kill rats. So the fleas had to go somewhere, and so they went to the humans. If we had not killed the rats, we have not died, but we didn't know that. Um, so so this, this, we know that it passed from parasites, but they didn't know. All they knew that people would wake up, and to, to understand what the black, black Plague worked like, you woke up one day, and you had a little bit of a swelling on the inside of your thigh. If you were lucky, you were dead by the end of the day. If you were unlucky, you lived for four or five days in absolute, abject, terrible, horrible agony, and then you died. Um, only about 1% of the population was actually immune. Um, the, uh, the European population was actually immune to this. Um, and now, you say, why don't we have black death plagues anymore? Well, it wiped out 90% of the population. 1% was immune. The other 9% married that 1%. We're mostly immune to black death now. Europeans are. Um, we, we carry the antibodies that fight that parasite, but it does still exist. They looked at it and they said, what is this? And they said, this is the reaping. Obviously, we're being judged. Obviously, this is the end of the world. Now, I got to tell you, if 90% of the population's dying, I'm thinking end of the world. Right? This is, this is massive. This is huge. This is a scale we cannot, we cannot comprehend the scale of this. Imagine the population of the United States being reduced from the 300 and some million that we have now and all that they do to under 100 million people, which is a population the United States hasn't had since 1900. And we swelled because of immigration. It would take 300 to 400 years for us to rebuild our population from a pandemic like this. Now you say, what's the big deal? Think about all the people you rely upon just to get through life. The mechanic to fix your car, the doctor to deal with your, your diseases, the, uh, the, uh, the people working in the office that manages your mortgage, that manages your bank account, because we don't actually have real money. We just have numbers in a computer thing. Think of all the computer software guys who are not, you know, I mean, we ha there are exceptions. 
Eric's in decent shape, but a lot of computer soft guys could use some aerobics. Um, you know, uh, think about what would happen. What would happen if the computer infrastructure dropped? Because how many of you can actually make a fire without actual with a lighter or something like that? How many of you can make a fire with flint and and rock or spinning a, a stick or something? Most most of our children think that fire is something that happens inside the furnace of a house. They have no concept of how to make one, how to start one. Um, how many of us could plant produce if we needed to? I mean, the Gilmans are all set. Don't worry. They're, they're, they're already, they're already, they've got their ducks and their, their corn and their garden and everything. But how many of us could feed ourselves if we needed to? I mean, food is something we get from the store for the vast majority of us. How many of us know how to hunt deer? How many of us would eat it if we caught it? How many of us know how to... <laughs> In fact, that's what I'm eating today. That on now not quite the technological level, but that's what happened to Europe. And so they said, "What did we see?" And they said, "We saw th this is this is what's going on. Obviously, the angel is reaping." And so they kind of married the image of the image of uh, a, a Celtic god named Anthu, and um, and uh, and this idea of the sickle, and they kind of put them together, and they had this image for death, and it was this black hooded thing with the sickle, um, and uh, and that was that was where that image came from. Right, the Grim Reaper, right? That comes from this passage. Comes from this passage. So when we we look at this, we we recognize that that, that what what we have that image as much as it gets used to Halloween, right? It's it's about human catastrophe meeting biblical imagery. But that's not what this passage is about. That's not what this passage is about. Um, and and we need to make sure that we do that we we see that. So what is this passage about? Well, there are two there are two harvests that are in there about there's one. Um, we read the first one and it says that he harvested the whole earth. The whole earth was reaped. Um, so he who sat on the cloud in verse 16, he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth and the earth was reaped. Um, and so this is this is a, a, a barley harvest. Uh, that's what you do with a, a barley sickle or, or a wheat sickle. Um, they take it and they swing it and it cuts all the grass. Right. And so this is the harvesting of the grain. And then the second one is the harvesting of the grapes. Now, it also says a sharp sickle, but the, it's translated sickle, sickle, but the image is not of a, a little thing you know, or a big thing like this, but a small thing. Have any, any of you ever seen grapes harvested? You know, what kind of implement do they use? A little sickle, right? You know, they use, some of them use clippers, but the traditional one is that it's a little curved blade, and they'll, they'll cut it like this. They'll snap it. Um, they'll cut the branch so that they don't bruise the, they don't want to traumatize the, um, the vine. So they, they do it as gently as they possibly can. But they have to harvest all of the grapes. They have to get all the grapes off so that the vine can grow the next time, right? So, so they, if you watch the traditional guys, they, some of them will carry it, they hold it like this, and they cut toward their face because they didn't take basic blade safety. Um, and then others will, will, will prune this way. Um, modern guys, use, they use clippers, like, like, um, you know, like pruners. Um, but th there are different ways that they harvest the grapes, but it's the same idea, but it's a different thing that's going. Whereas the first one is this, this sweeping harvest, the second one is a gentle harvest, um, gathering the grapes uh, for the purpose of pressing. And the imagery uh, is that all of earth will be harvested and there will be a, a great um, devastation. Now, there's a lot of opinions about what this is, but, but it seems to be a depiction of the final battle. When we read Joel chapter 3, remember we read that in the morning uh, at the beginning of the service? 
And that passage talked about all the nations of the world pounding their plowshares into swords and coming to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which is the, the valley of Megiddo um, in, in Aramaic, um, Armageddon, the last battle of the world. That's from the Bible, right? Um, and this idea of them coming to this battle, why? They come to this battle in opposition to God who, is, who stands to judge them. And the, the harvest that is dis- depicted here is the battle of men trying to fight God. And the bloodshed is enormous. Uh, the, the depiction of 1600 stadia, a stadion or a stadion um, in Greek, um, stadia in Latin, is the distance that in a hippodrome, a, a chariot racing arena, the distance they would ride around that was one trip around the stadia. It was the original NASCAR, left turn, left turn, left turn, left turn, left turn, left turn. Um, and they, they would ride, and it was a very violent sport, an extremely bloody sport. The horses bled, people bled, people got trampled. Watch Ben-Hur, you'll see it. Um, but that, that is the way that the, that was it. So the depiction, it could be that the blood flows for 1600 stadia, or he's using this illustration that the blood would fill 1600 hippodromes to the horse's bridle. Um, now, we're not talking about ponies. Okay. Oh, it's a Shetland pony. We're talking chariot horses. So we're talking a lot of blood. Okay. Um, you think The Walking Dead is gory. Don't watch it. Um, not a movie. I, not a show I have any interest in watching. But, um, but the, these you, we think about this gore and violence in TV and stuff, but we cannot fathom what a global scale war would look like when all of mankind aligns themselves against God. So what's the function of this depiction? It seems so graphic. What is its purpose? Ultimately, it is to remind us of a single fact. A single fact that manifests in kind of two orders. That number one, God is judge of all. And number two, even the world united against him doesn't stand a chance. God is judge of all. And even if the entire universe aligned against him, they don't stand a chance. Um, And it is not that God is planning to wipe out man, but rather man in this depiction, this idea, and we'll get into the great battle and how it it plays out. It's described again. But how it plays out is that man, despite the fact that he has no chance, simply will not accept that God is their judge. You don't have the right to judge me. God, you don't have the right to judge me. I'd fight rather than let a God judge me. What does that speak to? Doesn't that speak to the arrogance of man, our own self-delusion, that somehow we believe that we can be our own God, that we can be our own judge, that we can set our own code of morality? If you're visiting with us, I don't mean to offend you, but you have no right to decide what is right or wrong. The scriptures decide what is right or wrong. The God of the scriptures decides what is right or wrong. And while I might not agree with it, as a follower of Christ, I conform to it. Because I don't agree with it because I want to be my own God. I want to make my own determination. I want to live by my own rules. Or I want to live by somebody else's rules. Somebody more bigger, more, bigger, more powerful than me. Sets the rules for me. And so 
So I, I live under those rules because I, I don't want to come out from under those. I don't want to be forced to have the obligation of shifting my loyalties to someone else. So I will endure the domination of someone else rather than, uh, decide, than seek proper authority, which is the authority of God over me. And the depiction here is that at the end of time, all of mankind that is left, um, except for those who are redeemed by the Lamb, which are described in chapter, the beginning of chapter 14 and the end of chapter 15, um, they will rush to their own death rather than accept the judgment of God. So what does this mean in practical terms for us? And again, I did not intend to align this with the fact that Mike was visiting um, one of our missionaries was visiting, um, but uh, it does work rather nicely. That tells us something about our mission here in this time. That we, we must have a passion and a devotion to bringing the gospel to the whole world. To our world here, our little world, our families, our homes, our neighborhoods, our communities, but also globally. We must be, have a global passion that drives us to local action that changes our world and eventually the whole world. That we as a church, we look at a world that would rather die than obey God, and we are called to share the gospel with them. Because the gospel is not God is your judge and you deserve it. But rather the gospel is God is our judge. We deserve it. But Christ gives us grace. The forgiveness of sins. The renewal of love and devotion. The service of the poor and the weak. The peacekeeping and peacemaking. And we are called to do that in every aspect of our lives because every aspect of our lives takes place in the world. It's not like we exist outside of the world and occasionally dip into it. I mean, I don't walk through, I just saw a commercial for the new like Harry Pottery movie. Um, what's that called? All right, stars the guy that, yeah, anyway. Um, and there's a scene where he steps into a suitcase, you know, and of course immediately I just thought, well, isn't that weird? You know, he found Mary Poppins' suitcase. But, um, like Mary, Mary Poppins was a wizard before J.K. Rowling was even born. Um, but um, he steps in the suitcase, and inside the suitcase is another world. I think sometimes Christians think that, that we walk inside the church, and we're part of another world. We don't, we don't live in the same physical, tangible world that everybody else does. That's not true. We're in this world. We're, we're, we're in it. We interact with it. Our money is printed by it. Um, our jobs are, are created by it. Um, you know, our, our, our votes count toward it. You know, all of these different things. We're a part of this world. And we're a part of this world, to continue from last week, we're a part of this world because God has put us here in this world to have a passion for this world, a global passion that moves us to do things in our lives, local action. Global passion, local action. That's so trendy, it's like a tagline. Let's make a t-shirt. Um, but the, this, this is what's going on. Now, let me just end with, a, I'm going to end with a story. A personal story. I, I, I sometimes tell my stories to illustrate points. I want to tell a story not to brag. So, so if, it, if it comes off as being bragging, please understand it's not intended as a brag. Um, the, the, this week I was in, I was in uh, uh, Colorado testing for my, for my second degree black belt. And uh, the organization that we're in 
um, went through all these divisions and splits. Um, sound familiar, Christians? Has this ever happened in the Christian world? Um, and it was all over personality issues and, and di- stylistic issues and people aging out and people pushing other people out. and It's just messy. Um, and I wasn't a part of the organization when I was there. Um, but I went out with the intention of testing, and then there's one of the guys that had been really hurt by this, this whole thing, and I wanted to go meet him. Really skilled uh, practitioner. Uh, and uh, so we went out of our way. I was going to go by myself. The other guys in my club decided to come with me, and we, we went and met this guy um, at his dojo and, and talked with him for a little bit, took him out to, to uh, lunch. Um, you know, I did my, my typical lunch thing, which is ask all kinds of questions, and, and we told stories and laughed. He's a former Marine, served in Vietnam, um, just a, a great guy, really connected with him, and, and just shared with him. I shared with him my passion for our art, um, our art, and, and uh, my passion for um, uh, bringing people together and making connections and stuff. So we, we all said goodbye. He, he put a couple of wrist locks on me in the parking lot, which was interesting he he had one arm up in it he had just had carpal tunnel surgery he's like here here grab my arm and I'm like ah um, you know and uh, so anyway on Friday night I had my test um, and Friday night my test was at one of the at the the, the dojo the training place um, of one of the people that this guy had all these issues with there, there was a lot of bad blood between this guy and some of these other people I finished my test, and I was sitting, and I was, uh, we, were, we were going through some training, and I was trying to get my breath back. And I look over, and Dave, that's his name, and his wife, Carrie, walk through the door. And I, I get all emotional, mostly because I'm tired. I'm almost in tears, because th- these are people that for years have been at each other's throats. And Dave comes through. And I greeted him and hugged him and met his wife. and talk. I mean, I've known this guy for exactly one day. Right? But I'm like, Dave, so glad to see you. I wish you had been here for the test. He's like, oh, I wanted to be here for your test. Um, but but you know, we got stuck in traffic. Because if you've ever been to Denver, Denver's major export is traffic. Um, and, and so, so we're, we're, you know, I got stuck in traffic. I wasn't able to make it. You know, I really wanted to be here. And then at the end, um, and Lynn can tell me if this is a Japanese thing. When there's a big celebration, do they tend to do a lot of toasting at the end and talking? Okay, all right, good. That it wasn't like a weird, unique thing. They started, come by, right? Come by, right? And they all are passing around making these toasts and everything. And Dave stands up. And I'm like, oh boy. And he says, he says I'm so thankful for these guys who came from New Hampshire. And, and, and I felt so connected to them and I so I, I came and it's so nice to be here amongst my friends and then Tanaka Shihan who was the guy that oversaw my board um, who's the highest ranking he's the highest ranking guy in the United States in our art uh, he's a big deal although he's only like six foot um, Tanaka Shihan stands up and he he walks over this this thing on the paper on the board now keep in mind none of these people are Christians there are Christians in the group, but none of these are Christians. He walks over the board. Oh, I, before I tell that, I, I have to. So I stood up, and I and they asked me to stand up and speak. And I said, "Look, I said, Aikido is the only martial art I've I found that matches with my Christian values because the scriptures say, "Blessed are the peacemakers," and I want to be a peacemaker. And I'm so thankful to see so many of you here, and that we found 
a, a peace that we can come together. Then Tanaka Shihan stands up and he walks to a scroll that's all in kanji. It's all in, it's all in Japanese. And he points to this one section of it and there's this poem. And now keep in mind, he and Dave Nettles for years have been yelling at each other. All right? There's been wars, there's been fights. He says, you know what this says? And uh, he says, this is a poem that Tamiki Sensei, uh, uh, the founder of our, of our school, he, si he said when he opened a school in, in, uh, in Japan, and it said, um, there, are many pa there are a thousand paths up a mountain, but when you're at the top, it's the same moon that looks down on you. He said, and so we've all taken different paths as we've been, he been here. And I'm, you know, I'm all teary-eyed and clapping, and they're all, come by, you know, they're all intoxicated out of their minds, and I'm the designated driver, so I'm sitting there with a cup of water, um, you know, come by, this whole thing. And afterwards, my friend Brett, uh, who's been in the service before, he comes up to me, he says, you did this. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. He called me to be a peacemaker. So when you think that the gospel doesn't pervade every aspect of your life, remember that it does. When Jesus calls us to act, it is a part of the mission that he does not desire anyone to become a part of the pressing of the wineskins. He wants them to hear the gospel, to see the gospel, to, to receive what, what the scriptures are. And if we don't step up, then they're going to hear a false gospel. They're going to hear the prosperity guys on Christian TV selling vials of blood and sacred washcloths. And they're going to they're going to hear the 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 people who are telling them that if they just go to church enough times and they do the sacraments enough times that somehow they'll earn their place into heaven. They're going to hear the people that are going to say, if you just give enough money or if you just do this, they're going to hear all those other voices instead of hearing the peacemakers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who are so desperate for for people to know their Lord. So desperate, so motivated, not by all the gore and destruction, but by the compassion of a God who does not want man to go to him. So I'd encourage you to think about the world. Think about all of mankind in need of Christ. And then to do one thing any one thing in any sphere of life that you are a part of today, one act that is so totally saturated with the gospel, and then do a second one, and then do a third one, and then do a fourth one, and find places that the gospel needs to enter and do gospel stuff. Say gospel words. When I stood up, i got to finish this. I stood up to, to, to speak because they all kept asking me. I'm like, no, 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 no. And, and Mike Craig, our sensei at our dojo, he goes, go ahead, go ahead. He goes, he's the preacher. I stood up. You know, of course, I made my joke. I said, just remember, Baptists don't drink in front of other Baptists. And, uh, uh, you know, and then I, I kind of said, I said, uh, I said, you know, and then I, I just shared my thing. But, but, I, but the opportunity that, that they, they all, I mean, we're talking, on Thursday night, I was in a, a Buddhist temple. We were training in Denver Buddhist Temple. Um, uh, on uh, uh, in uh, Dave's dojo is the Shinto shrine um, to the to the, the the and and there's a whole lot that goes into Shinto. You can ask Lynn about it. Um, and and he's telling me how Shinto aligns with his Southern Baptist upright upraising upbringing. I'm going, not any Southern Baptist church I ever met, but uh, 
Um, you know, and, and the, these are people, but they all, you know what? There's not a single person like, oh, you're a Christian. I hate those people. Because I, I like to believe, and I could be wrong, and again, I'm not saying this is bragging. I'm not trying to brag, but I like to believe that as I have lived my life, they have seen the peacemaker. And when I said, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, no one went, oh, that's a surprise. We didn't expect that from him. They said, oh, that's why he does his outreach. It's not just because he's a nice guy. I'm not. But it's because Jesus called him to do it. To do one thing in one place. Then do a second thing. Maybe in that place or somewhere else. Or a third thing. A fourth thing. And speak the gospel and live the gospel and say, how can I be a peacemaker? How can I hunger and thirst after righteousness? How can I be meek? How can I be lowly? How can I serve? How can I love? Because God has a passion for the world. We can act locally. And do one thing. And then another thing. And then another thing. Because like he loves them, we must. And like he does not wish anyone to be condemned, we must want no one to be condemned. And we've got to get past our egos, get past our religious um, ideas, and get into the heart of Jesus and serve the people of the world. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and give you peace and give you peace and give you peace forever. My brothers and sisters, go in peace.